Hi, and welcome to the Good Fundraising Podcast, where we bring together nonprofit thought leaders and change makers to talk about what's good in the world of fundraising and what could be better. I'm your host, Alicia Mullenstein. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, I am joined by Rachel Herman, founder and executive director at Paws New York. Paws, pets are wonderful support, is celebrating its 10-year anniversary, and Rachel shares with us stories of her entrepreneurial journey and the challenges that her growing organization has had to face with changes to their business model during COVID. Before we get into the interview, I have some housekeeping and a request. We only have two more episodes left for this season of the Good Fundraising Podcast. For our last episode of 2020, I need your help. Please send me voice memos to hello at goodfundraising.net with your suggestions for what we should keep from 2020. It's been a rough year, but we've seen a lot of innovation in our sector, and there definitely are some things that we should keep. So please send in your thoughts by December 11th so I can add them to our final episode. If you're a little shy and don't want to have your voice on, just send me a note with some of the things that you think we should keep after this most unusual of years. Thanks for agreeing to talk about your journey to founding this nonprofit and now through 10 years of its growth. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about how you got the idea to start Pause and how things began. Sure. I was in grad school and I decided to make this career transition from pursuing a law career, a law degree, to kind of shifting my focus to the public sector and, and doing something that for me felt more personally fulfilling. And I was getting my MPA at NYU, um, as you know, and I would walk to class every day. And there was a young homeless couple and their dog always sitting outside of a grocery store near where I lived. And I would occasionally donate pet food, donate change, but I didn't really feel like the contributions I was making were, were making any kind of real long-term impact. And I thought about it and homeless shelters don't allow pets. And so I realized that this couple was likely giving up a warm bed at night because of the strong relationships they shared with their pet. It was probably making a lot of other sacrifices as well. And I started to think about how I could actually provide meaningful help and, you know, what other people live here in New York City and have pets and love them and benefit from that important relationship, but who are struggling. I started to think about seniors and how difficult it must be to continue providing care as you're getting older and facing maybe mobility challenges or, or other things that come from age. And I did some research and I could not find an existing organization here in New York City that was providing physical pet care is what came into my mind. And I couldn't really believe it because it's New York City and I feel like everything should already exist here, but it didn't. And so I decided I wanted to do something about it. And I've always sort of taken a baby steps approach, especially when you're starting something from scratch. If all you can do is think about sort of the end goal, I think it's almost impossible to make progress. So my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was always reminding me baby steps. I would get excited about these ideas. And, you know, if I could think about it in smaller, tangible goals, it really, I think, helped me start the organization and get to where we are today. You know, my parents met walking dogs in New York City, and so I always feel like Maybe I was meant to do something with animals. I've just loved them for my whole life. And so to be able to um, have turned something I'm really passionate about into my career is something I feel lucky to be able to do. And, you know, that was 
now over 10 years ago, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary last November, and we're, we're still going strong and, and growing. So it's been really amazing. That's amazing. And, and what an amazing foundation story from your parents meeting with dog walking. It absolutely <laughs> yeah. wasn't stars for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And they continue to be animal lovers too. You know, they have their animals at home and they love what I'm doing. So, and they're always emailing me saying, oh, you know, if <laughs> that dog still needs a foster home, you know, let me know. <laughs> so well, I, I really appreciate that you, you know, talk about taking baby steps to launch the organization because it, it absolutely, I think, can be overwhelming with any new initiative to only see what the end thing could be and kind of get overwhelmed, mm -hmm. just overwhelmed by all the steps to get there. So, you know, talk a little bit about the first couple of years. Where, what was the beginning like? What was the, the hardest, most unexpected thing about starting a new organization? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of challenges and I think one of the most important things anyone can do when they're starting, whether it's a nonprofit, you know, any other kind of company is surrounding yourself with people who have skills and strengths that complement your own and, you know, that people can bring things that I'm not able to do myself. So that was always really helpful. Um, trying to really build a team that could help me get to where I wanted to go because I knew that I, I couldn't do it alone. One really big challenge to actually get to the point where we could provide our first service is insurance and liability. I, you know, had this idea for a nonprofit. We had a board. We had our 501c3 certification. And, you know, I wanted to be able to get volunteers who could go into homes of seniors and other vulnerable New Yorkers and help them with pet care. And when you're working with animals, and high-risk, at-risk populations, there are legal concerns and liability issues. And, and to me, that's something that is really important. And I never take shortcuts. Some people could say, oh, you know, I'm just so excited to start this organization. Let's just start providing services and we'll take care of things later. That's not how I operate. You know, insurance companies, you know, didn't really want to uh, work with us. We were a new organization with no operational history, working with animals and working with seniors, you know, going into the homes of, of seniors. So I had to think creatively and our solution that we used for the first two or three years was we gained insurance through a company that provides coverage to independent pet sitters and dog walkers. The challenge of that is that it's on an individual basis. So I didn't have this blanket policy that covered everything we were doing. For every single new volunteer we trained who was providing services, I had to add them to the policy. I had to cut a check with that person's name on it. And so it was very time consuming, really inefficient, which um, I really don't like in inefficiency. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm a type A kind of person, but <laughs> it was the only way we were going to get out there and start helping people. And so that's what we did for, you know, two or three years um, in my spare time because I had a full-time job somewhere else. In my spare time on nights and weekends, I would train volunteers, do intakes with new clients. And with every new volunteer training, I then would have to get in touch with this insurance company. So it it was not something that was sustainable, but it was something we had to do in order to get 
our operations underway. So after a few years of doing that, we had enough of a history that we were actually able to secure a more appropriate policy for our organization that does not involve writing a check every time we train a new volunteer. So that was kind of a big obstacle at the beginning. You know, there, I mean, there's so many challenges as a small organization, you know, even 10 years later, I feel like people don't really know who we are or what we do. And back then, it was me on lunch breaks, nights and weekends, picking up the phone. I was always so happy when organizations or people took what I was doing seriously and wanted to partner with us because I think that takes a lot of trust mm-hmm. and you know understanding of what the goals of our organization are you know what we're doing is pretty unique I think it's becoming a little bit more mainstream now 10 years later but our program back then was definitely something that you didn't really see a lot of I, I still think about about it to this day, but City Meals on Wheels, which is an incredible organization. I was connected to them. I'm nobody to this organization. And I went and said, hey, I'm trying to start this organization. I know you serve homebound seniors. Do you think our services could be helpful? And they loved it. And they, I am not kidding when I say they picked up the phone, they sent emails, they connected me to social service agencies all around the city. And that's how we got our clients back then, almost all of them. And to this day, they still help with client referrals, and they even send volunteers our way. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's a huge organization. Who was I? What was paused to them? Like nothing, but they believed in what we were doing, and that uh, was so instrumental to to our success. Well, that's the best of the sector. I mean, I think as far as nonprofit goes, that willingness to share and collaborate when it works, it can be such an amazing transformative thing to have that community over competition Absolutely. I've I've encountered the competition mentality as well in my <laughs> in the early phase when I was doing research. I came across an organization that had a smaller program helping with pets and you know I had a not so great conversation with a staff member at that organization where they basically said it's a great service but it's impossible to raise money like you're never going to do it. And that was really disheartening. I look back at it and I think you know maybe they were worried I was going to come in and and compete for the funding that they wanted. I wasn't trying to do that. And the demographic I had set out to serve did differ from who their organization was serving. But some people have that fear. But at the end of the day, like collaboration, um, like we all want our organizations to succeed because we're in it for the mission. I've been just amazed at how supportive and collaborative most people and organizations have been over the last 10 plus years. Well, that's that's great to hear. And I, I think it's just important calling out what you said about the licensing and the requirements and the desire to really do it right. Because I'm sure even though that was incredibly frustrating for the first two or three years, that that was a huge part of your longevity. Yeah. Um, too many bad actors and who are, or ill-informed actors, not even bad intent, just ill-informed and mm-hmm. don't have an understanding of what a professional nonprofit was. I mean, clearly you were going to school for it and you were working once so you were already past those hurdles, but yeah, so important. Yeah. And you know, and even now our volunteers are amazing. We have the best group of volunteers and it's not their responsibility to think about liability. That's my job. Right. And I do think that there is sometimes a disconnect because, you know, our volunteers and everybody wants to make a difference, but at the end of the day, I need to make sure I'm protecting the organization because 
if something happens, we could risk our tax exempt status. And we can train people, we can set protocols, but you cannot control for every situation, especially when, you know, you're working with animals. Yeah. The least predictable clientele. Yeah. And you don't always know how other people are outside of the organization in caring for their animals out on the street. We have pretty strict rules, like no dogs off leash. You can't take a client's pet to the dog run. I know you want to, and it will be fun, and it will 99.9% .9 of times be a wonderful experience, but it is not worth it. We're here to make sure that pet can stay with that person for as long as possible. To do that and to do that well for as long as possible, we have to set rules and protocols to make sure we're protecting the program. I have to imagine that just by the nature of, of working with the elderly and with pets, you do have a lot of volunteers coming with the best of intentions, maybe even more than you can manage because it's, it's working with animals. Can you talk a little bit about any of the challenges that come with running you know, a large volunteer-based program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said before, I truly think we have the best volunteers on the planet. We've, in 10 years, trained, I think, just over 2,500 people. And without a doubt, every single one of those 2,500 people are amazing, kind, good-hearted people. I mean, they're coming to us because they want to help a neighbor, somebody here in the city, take care of their animal and help that person maintain that relationship. But as I said before, it's not a volunteer's responsibility to necessarily be thinking about liability. And like some of these things fall on me as executive director and on my board. And I always try to put myself in a volunteer's shoes and think about how does this situation feel? And COVID is a perfect example. We had to make a really difficult decision to suspend our house call program. And that's our program where we send our volunteers into the homes of our clients to help with dog walking, cat care, any of the day-to-day -day pet care tasks that our clients are struggling to provide on their own. It was March 17th and we had a board call it was a difficult and a really easy decision to make. Difficult in that our house call program is really the core of what we do. It really hurt to have to make the decision to suspend it. But it was easy because at the end of the day, the health, well-being, and the lives of our clients are the priority. So we made the decision to suspend it. And our clients, I could not believe just how wonderful they were when we picked up the phone and called every single one of them to tell them what was happening how we were met with appreciation and kindness, and they understood what, what was happening and why we were making this decision. The thought that a volunteer could inadvertently get a client sick is just not something that we were comfortable with as an organization. That's a level of risk that we're not willing to take. And so I don't think back on March 17th, we expected to be where we are today on right. September 3rd. We certainly hear from volunteers who I think are probably frustrated that we haven't reopened the house call program. And I understand they just want to help. I know we have volunteers who are still going to their assignments, even though we have made it very clear that our program is suspended. And they do know that if they're going, they're doing it as, as their own private citizens and not as volunteers. And I think from a volunteer's perspective, that could potentially come off as cold, that they don't understand, that they think we don't, don't want to help. Again, at the end of the day, our goal is to help people for as long as possible. And so we need to be very careful 
about how we conduct ourselves. It's not about each individual visit to a client, because if we think about each individual visit, we forget about the big picture. And it's very easy to make decisions that I think are the wrong decisions. Like back when I first started the organization, a volunteer would have to miss their dog walk. I would go myself. I quickly learned that was not sustainable. I can't just jump in and walk every dog. I can't have our clients expecting like me to just be showing up as the executive director every time a volunteer. That's the wrong set of expectations. (laughs) That's not how I can build a sustainable organization. Like we're humans, things come up. And so, you know, we try our best to not just communicate decisions to volunteers, but to communicate why we're making certain decisions. We're not sending emails talking about liability, but we are sending emails talking about the health and safety of our community, both our clients, our volunteers, and our staff. We hope that when we get through to the other side of this pandemic and we feel safe to reopen our house cult program, that we will still have all of our loyal volunteers who have been with us throughout. And we've been thinking really hard about how we can continue to engage them during this time. Um, what opportunities can we give them to stay involved with us? Because we we know that it's hard and we're, we're going to lose volunteers, not because they're upset that we put the program on hold, which we might, but just because of the amount of time that's gone by and how our lives changed so significantly, right? People's schedules and availabilities will be different. So it's going to be a lot of work when we get there. Yeah. We're doing our best. And I think as a small organization, I hope that our volunteers all feel comfortable coming to us on a personal level if they have questions, concerns. So it's like a really long-winded response to your question <laughs> of, you know, our volunteers just want to help. Yeah. And so sometimes that desire to help, we have to do our best to reel it in. Another example is a volunteer might have a shift on a Monday and they think, oh, I'm free on Wednesday. I'm just going to show up and walk the dog. And that's the nicest thing, right? There's no negative, there's nothing bad about that. It's only they want to help more. But at the same time, when volunteers start doing things on their own, we lose control of the program. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what impact we're having. Maybe we scheduled another volunteer to go at that time and they don't know about it. So we try to set protocols and communicate as clearly as we can to volunteers, not just what the rules are, but you know why we have them. And, and we hope that that makes sense and, and hope that they sort of follow along with that as best as possible. I think every volunteer based organization runs into this in in some way. It manifests itself some way, shape, or form, whether it's showing up to want to walk the dog outside of the shifts or going rogue and doing their own fundraising campaign. Um yeah. You know, or or what have you. And it's it's always the best of intentions, but it's not always, as I think you said really well, in line with what the long term vision and the long term goals are. And it's everybody wants to help. It's a matter of channeling that help into the way that's going to be the most productive for the most people or clients over the long term. And I think that's really difficult if you're not part of the ongoing operations of an organization to see what that domino effect can actually look like Mm -hmm. (laughs) when it gets out of hand. Exactly. And it's sort of like another example too, where this has come into play is we, in the last few years, have transitioned from having a very manual process to training volunteers, onboarding them, staffing them to an online portal where they can search for jobs 
through this volunteer portal. They can sign up. There's a lot more that's automated. And that's been a huge transition for our volunteers. The new people we're training, that's just what they know when they come on. And so it's fine. But for the people who've been with us, all of a sudden, we're asking them to change how they interact with the organization. That's been a huge hurdle. Some people don't want to use a new system. They just think, I've been doing it this way. I just, it's, it's putting a burden on them and I get it. They're already giving their time and doing so much for us. And now we're asking something different than what they initially signed up for. It's just really been a challenge to do this conversion to our volunteer portal and getting people into the system and using it in the way that they need to. We're not doing it to make anybody's lives more difficult. We're doing it so we can have a greater impact because there's no way we can help more people if we continued to staff volunteers with clients the way we were doing prior. Yep. Now we have this increased capacity to make such a larger difference because of technology. And technology is can really be a barrier. We've tried really hard to train people and walk them through it and even sign them up themselves. But that's another example of where volunteers have had really good intentions of wanting to help, but they just haven't signed up for the portal yet and they're not in there. And so we're not tracking what they're doing. Um, it's been a bit of an uphill battle with that. But, you know, in the end, it will be fine. We just have to be really on top of who are we missing, reaching out to them, you know, being really proactive and doing a lot of emails and things to, to those people we're missing. I think a lot of people are drawn to volunteer organizations. I mean, certainly with animals, but most volunteer engagements give you the chance to interact with the mission and have a mission that maybe has only existed on paper or in your mind as being something worthy to become physical and tangible, whether you're going out and doing a distribution or a food collection or helping with Special Olympics at an event. There's some sort of in-person elements to it that distinguishes it from just raising money. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how has your work changed, like the actual work right now changed? And, you know, what is that connection for the volunteers? I know you mentioned still trying to, to reach out and keep people engaged, but what's happening now so that you keep that level of engagement high when you are able to go back out and do the work? Yeah, it's certainly a challenge. We were doing between 400 and 450 in-person visits a week before COVID. And just like that, those visits stopped, you know, on March 17th. And before we picked up the phone and called all of the clients, we we sat and thought about, okay, well, we can't just call our clients and say, sorry, we're not sending those 14 volunteers every week or whatever it was. We needed to hopefully try and come up with alternate solutions and work with them. One of the things we did was talk to every client about what potential support they might have that maybe they didn't have prior to COVID. Everybody was starting to stay home and work from home. And so maybe now that meant there were neighbors or family members who had more time to be able to help them with their pet when pre-COVID they weren't around. So we talked to clients about that, thinking creatively for our most in-need clients, the clients who really couldn't get by without our help. Like these are the homebound clients, the ones who can't even get to their stoop to let their dog out. We offered foster care for their pet, which is a program that we ordinarily have. We have a foster and emergency care program through which we provide temporary care for pets when the client is facing a medical crisis, most often dealing with a hospitalization. 
we sort of pivoted that program to be able to offer foster care for our clients during COVID who, because of the fact that we weren't sending volunteers every day, really felt like they wouldn't be able to keep their pet. Now, that was difficult, right? Because we're going into this quarantine and our clients are isolated and our volunteers are often the people they're seeing most often. So our volunteers are not coming anymore. And now we're saying, oh, we'll take your pet and put your pet into a foster home. Some of our clients said yes and took us up on that because it was really the only option that they had. And for others, they they said no. And I understand that, right? They didn't want to part with their animal companion because that's their best friend and, and their source of companionship, which is even more critical during this pandemic. That was one thing we did. And then we do have a pet pantry, which prior to COVID was a way for us to donate pet food and supplies. And it was more sporadic, not a significant amount of help. And once COVID happened, we said, listen, we cannot have our volunteers leaving their homes, putting themselves at increased risk of getting this virus because they need to get pet food or wee-wee pads or litter or whatever it is. And so we've made a commitment to provide 100% of all pet food and supplies through the entirety of the pandemic. We go online and we order food and supplies and have it shipped directly to our clients. Rachel, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm so happy we could do it. And, you know, this program looked very different before because we relied on volunteers to come to the office, pick up inventory. We liked that volunteers could get involved. And that was a way to do something on a one-off basis that didn't involve a, the same shift every week through our house call program, which is sometimes difficult for people to commit to. So this was different. We haven't been able to utilize volunteers through that program but we are providing significant more help. We've sent some self-cleaning litter boxes to clients that have cats that we thought that might reduce the burden a little bit. You don't have to scoop it quite as often. Um, for clients who have home health aids, it would be easier for them to clean out. So we've been really trying to think creatively about what we can do to ease the stress and the burden as much as possible, even though we've had to pull back. We've done that in addition to providing some increased foster care for our clients who felt they really needed it. We've continued to provide foster care for medical reasons. We've had clients who have had COVID, and we've also had clients who have been dealing with other medical emergencies that are non-COVID related but have required hospitalization. And so we're really trying to do everything we can to make sure that those relationships can remain intact. One sort of really important aspect of this for us was that volunteer component. Like now these 450 visits aren't happening. Those are 450 friendly visits that are companionship. And so it's been really important for us to make sure that our volunteers are remaining in contact with their clients, not only clients that they were already paired up with prior, but we have volunteers who are making phone calls that weren't matched up prior, but just want to help. We have people writing handwritten notes and cards. We have a woman who's supposed to run the marathon for us out in California who wrote a handwritten note for every single one of our clients, mailed them to us. We're not sharing client address, contact information. So she mailed them to our community outreach manager, Kimberly, and Kimberly mailed them out to every client. And it was just lots of little personal touches here or there we're trying to do. And um, I think it's a good way for volunteers as well to stay connected and then the last thing we're doing is trying to think creatively about events we can have for volunteers. So we're actually in the process of planning a virtual town hall 
where number one, we're going to report to volunteers on everything we've been doing and why we've made the decisions we have. But then we're also going to ask to hear from them. Like, what do they need to see to feel comfortable getting back into the house call program? And any feedback and advice that they can provide to us that will help make us more successful when we're ready to go. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I've heard so many different organizations having to pivot in the way that they deliver their services. And it's just fascinating to hear in such a short time what your organization has had to do to still stay true to the mission and find ways to service the people and the pets that you work for in in new and novel ways. And I just think it's going to be so interesting when we all come out of this to see what sticks and what becomes part of a new business model and a new way of working, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm racked with anxiety thinking about our volunteers and, you know, are they going to stick with us through this? This is a long period of time to not have the kind of interaction with our clients and the organization that's what they signed up for. I'm constantly asking people, do you have any advice on what I can be doing to keep volunteers engaged? People, especially earlier in the pandemic, I think got very like Zoom fatigue yep. kind of, right? But now we have our routines, you know, are there virtual events we can have? We can't replicate in person, but what can we do? And so I, like you said, I'm curious to see where we land at when we get to the other side. We actually are also continuing to train new volunteers We took about a month and a half, two months off. We had to cancel a bunch of in-person sessions at the beginning, and then we pivoted to virtual volunteer trainings. And some people might think that's strange we're doing it because we don't have any house call services happening right now, but we are going to have a huge need when we are ready. And we need to make sure that we have the manpower to provide the services that our clients will so desperately need. That's the other trick is how do we manage those relationships with the volunteers who are being trained now where there's nothing for them to really do right away, Um, making sure that we keep them involved and motivated. And we hope that we don't lose their excitement and and momentum to to kind of get involved. Yeah, I appreciate that you're future-proofing that volunteer pool because you'll have to even retrain all your existing volunteers on whatever new protocols come out of this, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 My program director has already put together all the new protocols. So we're ready when the time comes. We we just ordered pause masks. We ordered sanitizer in little cases and yeah, we're, we're working on it and you're right. I mean, everyone will have to be retrained because everything is going to look a lot different. The two things which will not be a surprise that we always need are donations and volunteers. I mean, our volunteers are the are absolutely the best ambassadors for what we do. These are the people who are active on social media. They are sharing Instagram and Facebook posts and getting the word out there. And that to me is so critical to our success, building up that volunteer network, keeping them engaged, getting them active on social media. And then obviously, you know, we need funding. I feel lucky that so far we've been okay from the fundraising side of things. But I don't know what the next 12, 18 months will look like and the delayed impact that this pandemic will have. And we don't know what's going to happen over the next few months. Obviously, funding is always important for us as a small nonprofit that doesn't have the kind of resources that larger, more established organizations have. It's even more critical because we want to make sure that we can continue to be here something like this is not something we budgeted for. It's not something that we ever anticipated. We appreciate any level of support, um, whether it's a dollar or $5 or or more, it, it all goes directly to our clients. So 
we just, everything is about building our community, right? The more people who know about us, the more volunteers we get, the more money we raise, the more people and pets that we help. So that's obviously the end goal. Yeah. And, and you're at such an interesting intersection, I think, for animal welfare too, where, you know, the, the whole concept of fostering and keeping people with their pets longer has definitely gotten some traction over the years, but I don't think it's in most people's minds as what, you know, animal welfare looks yeah. like. They think of the rescue or they think of adopting themselves, but you're at this really interesting place with the people pet connection and the value of keeping pets with their people, especially in vulnerable communities. I just don't know that the funding has caught up with you yet, <laughs> but no, and you're definitely on like the cutting edge of it. You're you're right, and I mean I'm starting to see some movement, but I will say it's both a challenge and an opportunity. The fact that we sort of hover between animal welfare and human services, when you look at it from institutional funding, like a majority of our money comes from foundations and grants, individual donors. I think last year was 9% of our revenue. Like we need to focus on our individual donors and get that mm -hmm. percent, that piece of the pie to grow. We also struggle with foundations because we don't fit clearly into certain priority areas. You know, you look at animal welfare and it's spay, neuter, rescue, a bunch of different categories. That's just not what we do. And, and for human services, it's the same. You know, we're not providing food and shelter to people or direct healthcare to people. You know, we have these two different avenues to pursue, but it takes a certain person or institution to understand why what we're doing is so important and how they, they connect. And, and who I'm talking to, I have to shift the conversation completely. I, I once was speaking with a funder who told me they declined our application and I wanted to reapply. And they said, definitely reapply. Don't talk about people. We don't want to hear about, oh, uh, yeah, like we just want to hear about the animals. So, you know, everything about the human-animal bond, everything about the companionship, that that was all gone. So in that proposal, I had to talk about the number of pets we're keeping out of the shelters, how um, the health and welfare of those animals is improving because now they have access to more vet care. We're keeping them, you know, all these other things. It's interesting. Um like I said, for me, we're actually hiring our very first uh, development staff person. Uh, hopefully we'll bring somebody on in the next month. I'm so excited. This is going to be life-changing. <laughs> um, so this new development manager's goal is individual giving. We need people to know about us. We need to start asking for money. And we need to start increasing that piece of the pie from 9 9% to something else that can ensure that we can sustain our impact long term. Because otherwise, we lose a big grant. And we're, we're not in such a great situation. I, I think if COVID showed nothing else to organizations, it's the importance of having that diversified funding. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And not even COVID, but I mean, pick whether it's an election or a, a change at a foundation, you know, having all your eggs in one funding basket are just too vulnerable. So yeah. And I applaud you for your development person. I'm excited for that. Know. And, you know, <laughs> looking forward to seeing what impact they get to make on, uh, teaching some of those funders a thing or two about <laughs> the importance of the people animal bond. Yeah. But like I said, I have over the last couple of years really started to see a shift, especially on the institutional side, both on the human and the animal side, animal focused foundations, really looking at programs that are surrender prevention, intake diversion. And on the human side, 
you know, organizations that value the role that that pets play in the lives of people. And and often I'm seeing in seniors, it's promising. And I I hope we continue to see a shift toward the recognition of the value of um, the work that we're doing. Well, hopefully we'll come out of this to your point with people realizing how much their animals meant to them. And you have a whole new wave of adopters during COVID for whom their pets became super important. So hopefully there's a way to tap into them and rally them to realize that if it was important for them, it would be equally important to someone who's been living with that pet for 12 or 20 years already at this point. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. I I hope that's true too. So we'll, we'll see. All right. Thank you for so much time. Uh, right before a holiday weekend in the midst of a pandemic. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about the organization, what we've been doing. I, I really appreciate the, the platform. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm really fascinated by your experience, you know, going from a big organization to going out on your own and starting something and having it last 10 years. It's quite an accomplishment. So I'm always excited to hear from you what's going on. Thank you. Yeah. And I am not a risk taker either. So it was, (laughs) it was a stressful decision to leave my good, secure job at what was my dream organization. Honestly, that's like, that was my end goal. But then I just couldn't not give Paws a chance. I just, I had, I had to do it. And I'm, I'm so glad I did. Thanks again to Rachel Herman from Pause New York for joining us today to share her experience. And thank you for listening to the Good Fundraising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend and consider subscribing at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, submit your thoughts on what from 2020 is worth keeping for our fundraising sector by December 11th, and you can be featured in our last podcast of the year. Thanks again for listening to the Good Fundraising Podcast. Until next time, be nice and do good.